Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Edmo Show Real Talk Bible Series. Right now, we are covering Genesis chapter 45 and 46. We got a two for today. So um, just before we get started, I would like to say thank you to everyone who is who is keeping up with us, who is following up with us on the Edmo Show with the Bible Series. I'm getting some very good feedback from a lot of people that I know, I'm getting a lot of good feedback from people I've never met before, uh, especially with people who are saying that the Bible series is helping them. It is inspiring them to get back into reading the Bible. That is something that I am deeply honored uh, to hear. And I'm very appreciative that people are joining me on this journey starting from Genesis chapter one, verse one, and now we're continuing on to 45. But there's a lot that I've learned and uh, we're almost done with Genesis. But just the fact that just through these 44 chapters, so much has changed that I can attest to in my personal life. Uh, I'll I'll definitely cover that at the end of Genesis but and especially I would like to apologize to everybody for missing a week. Uh, I know that's not really like the Edmo show. We've been having a lot of hiccups lately. Uh, a lot of it has been production stuff. And uh, on top of that, with just regular life stuff, because outside of this, I do have a regular life. I do have a regular job, nine to five. Got a wife, got animals, got all types of responsibilities that I got to tend to. But, um, but also, uh, I would like to thank all of you guys, not just for the Bible series, but for the Edmo show, we have finally hit our first year of podcasting, and it has been a terrific journey. Um, a lot has gone on, even as I listen back on a lot of the episodes, especially my earlier episode, how much I've grown as a host, how much I've learned about production, uh, some of the topics, the the conversations that I've had. You know, the, the guests, the, the, my co-host from the missus to fat Jesus to David, um, to connecting with, uh, in, inspirational people like Alfonso Rachel. Um, I've had my friend Mark DeVette on the show, uh, connecting with, um, with Meryl Rutledge and, uh, uh, Dilla Flippo out of New York. Like it, it's just been a lot of people that I would really like to thank especially for for starting us out on a really good season one. And I never thought that I would be doing something like this. So I am deeply appreciative of everything that you guys, the listeners have done. I'm appreciative to everything that everybody, you know, who helps out with the show, everybody who shared the show, everybody who works on the show. And it's been a, a, a very humbling and very, very, motivating moment because when I when I go and I look at all the content and just seeing how much work we've done how far we've come it's just I'm just at all you know what what a year of consistent work and growth and change and especially I, like I tell you guys I experiment on the show all the time so if I can do it anybody can do it but so we're just going to go ahead and move on. There's enough of that. But chapter 44 recap for those of you who do not remember, because we did take a week off 
in celebration and, of course, catching up with regular life stuff. In chapter 44, Joseph tested his brothers again by accusing Benjamin of stealing from him. To Jacob's surprise, Judah threw himself to endure the punishment instead of Benjamin. So, chapter 45, we are going to get to it. So, if you guys um, if you guys are new to the show and you would like to follow along or because we're about to be done with uh, Genesis, I would advise you guys to get pick up Dennis Prager's book, Genesis, God, Creation, and Destruction. That's one of the sources that I'm using to help me understand what these passages are telling me. And if you guys want to follow along with um, your own Bibles, I am using the Messianic Jewish Family Bible, the Tree of Life version, or as you know, those of you who like to go to BibleStudy.com and you know, and all this other stuff, it is the TLV version. But it doesn't matter what kind of Bible that you're using. I'm using the TLV version just because a lot of research, a lot has gone into this book with uh, translating Hebrew into English, not Hebrew to Greek to Latin to Old English to all this other stuff. It is literally a one for one comparison. Now, they do, especially in the New Testament, they do do a do do they do a one for one comparison because some of the letters were written in Greek. So it makes the translations a little bit cleaner. Now, translations may differ. I found in Dennis Prager's book that his translations uh, differ slightly different than than my version. That's OK. Um, but if you guys want to follow along, I don't care if it's the King James version. I don't care if, if it's the NIV version. I don't care if it's whatever because there's so many different flavors of versions out there hey have at it i I just encourage you guys to follow along so chapter 45 joseph reveals himself now joseph could no longer restrain himself in front of all those who were standing by him so he cried out get everyone away from me so no one stood with him when joseph made himself known to his brothers but he gave his voice to we, uh, to weeping, so so the Egyptians heard. I'll probably put a typo in there somewhere, but that's okay. Pharaoh's household heard Joseph uh, and said to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household heard. Joseph said to his brothers, "I am Joseph. Is my father alive?" And his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Now, Dennis, uh, you know, he starts off with a nice little passage when it talks about Joseph could no longer control himself. Dennis writes that they have passed his test. Joseph was emotionally overcome by his brother's presence, their suffering, their pain and his and their moral growth. They were not the same people he had uh, who had thrown him into the pit and then sat down to uh, to to a meal why he cried out for help and um verse 40 40 uh verse 3 uh it says but his brothers could not answer him so dis so dumbfounded uh they were on account of him so that's one difference and dennis rice dumbfounded surely an understatement the brothers were undoubtedly in a state of shock they had assumed Joseph was either long dead, life expectancy for slaves in the ancient societies was short, 
or had uh, irre I cannot read irretrievably disappeared. How could a 17-year-old boy who was presumably sold into slavery become, uh, become aside from Pharaoh, the most powerful person in Egypt? It made no sense. Yet here he was, undeniably the man he claimed to be. As the American writer Mark Twain once remarked, truth is stranger than fiction because fiction has to make sense. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, so we are going to continue on. All right, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold to Egypt, he said. So now don't be grieved. Don't be angry in your own eyes that you have sold me here since it was the person ah, since it was for preserving life that God sent me here before you for there has been crap. Let me go ahead and blow this up because I am squinting bad. Uh, where was I? So now don't be grieved. Don't be angry. Okay. Uh, for there has been two years of famine in the land and there will be five more years yet with no plowing or harvesting. But God sent me ahead of you to ensure remnant in the land and to keep you alive for a great escape. Now, it wasn't you. You didn't send me here, but God. And he made me as a father to Pharaoh, Lord over this whole house, and ruler over the entire land of Egypt. Go up quickly to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has, has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. Then you'll live in the land of Goshen. And be close to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your cattle and everything that belongs to you. I'll provide food for you there for the famine will last another five years. Otherwise, you'll lose everything you and your household and everything that belongs to you. And look, you and my brother, Benjamin, can see with your own eyes that it is my mouth that's speaking to you. You must tell my father all about my honor in Egypt. And all about you and all and about all that you've seen. And you must quickly bring my father down here. Mm. So Dennis writes these words. I am Joseph, your brother, were echoed by uh, Pope John the 23rd, whose given name it was Joseph Roncalli. When he greeted uh, when he greeted Jewish leaders at the Vatican in 1960, the Pope used this great biblical story of reconciliation in an attempt to reconcile the Catholic Church with the Jewish people, whom had whom it had often per, uh, persecuted. These words, which so deeply surprised and moved Joseph's brother, greatly surprised and moved the twentieth the twentieth century descendants of Joseph's brothers. And Dennis writes an essay, which is pretty lengthy, but I'll probably jump through it. And his essay is titled God and Free Will. And it reads, now that Joseph believes his brothers truly regretted what they have done to him, he told them they were not ultimately responsible for what they did. They were actors in a divine drama that led to his uh, that led to his prominence in Egypt. 
this rise, uh, this raises one of life's most important questions. How much free will do we have? Religious people who believe in divine intervention, such as Joseph described here, needs to address this question. Atheists have an answer. Human beings, excuse me as I move my book. Human beings do not have free will. If, as atheists contend, we are all only material beings, like the stellar dust of which we are composed, we cannot have free will. As matter doesn't make choices, neither do we. Everything we do is determined by our genes and by our neurons firing according to scientific principles. For the atheist, the assertion that human beings have free will is wishful thinking and self-delusion. Human beings are essentially rocks with self-consciousness and therefore have no more free will than rocks. Here is the atheist position of free will as described in the in the humanist by a prominent contemporary atheist thinker. There's a desperate charm in the, uh, to that idea of free will. But we're quite beyond it now. The mechanisms of decision making and the chemistry of empathy, the physics of neuroplasticity, each gnaws away every day and few remain support of free will model of individual of individuality we are forced to neither redefine free will to something existent but meaningless or chunk or chunk the or chuck the idea altogether to make peace with finding a subtle joy of our exquisite program program mobility sorry but this position makes sense only in the abstract when any of us Atheists, believers, agnostics, think about it. The idea we have no more free will than a rock strikes us as absurd. If you decide to forego dessert uh, to keep your weight down, is that decision entirely programmed? Do students who cheat on tests have no choice uh, to do so? Are we to believe that no one who does good and no one who does evil is in any way responsible for what they do. If we do believe these things, all discussions of good and evil is meaningless. Calling a person or an act evil is no more meaningful than calling the earth evil after an earthquake. And moral instruction is pointless. While respond to such instruction as we are programmed to do, so why teach good and evil? And if teaching about good and evil does influence people, it means we do have free will. Finally, if there is no free will, life is pointless. We are all acting out of a pre-programmed script we had no hand in writing. Only if we have a non-material consciousness and or a soul, we can make decisions that are not entirely determined by genes and environment. Therefore, as ironic as it as it may sound to a secular person, only a God based understanding of human life allows for free will. The people for believer, the problem for believers is how to believe in both divine intervention and free will. If Joseph was right about God leading the brothers to abandon him to his fate in a pit, where was the brothers free will? There is no perfect answer because Believers are not prepared to abandon their belief in divine intervention or free will. 
but there are imperfect answers. Only that moral free and divine pre uh, and, uh, and divine providence coexist, but only God knows precisely how they mesh. Another is another is most believers recognize God does not always intervene, but does so at times of his choosing for his purposes. I find both responses rationally acceptable. In an in any event, Joseph was magnanimous in telling his brothers not to reproach themselves for what they did to him. But it is quite a bit easier. We must admit to forgive and to see God's hand when things turn out as well as they did for Joseph. Yep. Yep. Man, that was a very deep essay. And it it really does spark that question in my mind. And I'll, and I'll revisit this idea at the end if I remember, (laughs) but it does re spark that idea of where does divine intervention begin and free will begin because especially in giving the current social climate, it is kind of hard to see God's hand in a lot of these things. However, it's not until the end when we recount on things that we can probably see God's hand. I mean, I don't think that Joseph probably thought all this was divine intervention as he was going through it. Probably now in his understanding of the moment and his and what he's put his brothers through and everything that he's observed that he probably came to the realization that this was God's doing, like this was a divine intervention. I don't think he, it's kind of hard to believe that he believed that God's hands was actively working when he was in a pit and being sold into slavery. It's probably now after the fact hindsight 2020 that he can probably see it, you know? Uh, But also I think, I think also free will, I think that there has to be something in us first, like to believe that, okay, God is turning us into robotic beings to, to act out his purposes. I think, and I, and I could be wrong. The way that I think about this is, If we are programmable, then we have to think of it like a computer. We design computers to have a certain form and function. However, sometimes when you input things like a a cell phone is a cell phone, a a laptop is a laptop. They're both program is different. Now, while they may have things that may interface with one another and yada, 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 a cell phone can never do exactly what a computer can do on it, it may imitate, it may be able to do certain, some things to a certain degree, but to the full capacity, it's just not in its capability. And I think sometimes in, in relation to people, we are all programmed to do certain things. We, so therefore, we all have the, the predisposition to act on certain things. And I think sometimes when these algorithms in us when these algorithms kind of like the matrix, when we are put into situations, we react in certain ways 
therefore this may you know and only god knows as dennis writes only god knows to what extent but maybe it's god has to let things play out before he can even weave you know his hands in certain things it, like it, it it already has to be a part of who we are which is why the the individual is probably the most precious thing in the world and yeah so i'm i'm going to go ahead and keep reading then he fell upon his brother benjamin's neck and wept while benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them finally after this his brothers talked with him when the commotion was heard by in pharaoh's house Joseph's brothers have come. It was so good in the eyes of Pharaoh and his servants. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and go to the land of Canaan. Then get your father, your household and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and I and you will eat the fat of the land. You are also commanded to say, do this, take for yourselves wagons from from the land of Egypt for your little children and for your wives and and pick up your father and come don't be concerned about your goods because the best of the because the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours so one interesting indicator there was when pharaoh heard about it pharaoh told joseph to say this to his brothers so that gives us the indication when joseph broke out of character he was communicating with his brothers in his native Hebrew tongue. So obviously his brothers don't understand Egyptian. They they only speak, you know, whatever common language that they have. But Joseph is now acting as the mediator and the translator between the Pharaoh and his brothers. So uh, Dennis also writes about um, Joseph's special affection for his brother and Dennis writes, uh, Joseph's credit, he did not only embrace his brother, but embraced and wept upon his brothers. Oh, sorry, I misread that. Joseph's To Joseph's credit, he did not only embrace Benjamin, but embraced and wept on all of his brothers. One would wish that all who read this would find the possible, find it possible to reconcile with family members from whom they were estranged and whose wrongs are likely far less evil than those committed by Joseph's brother. So, and that's, that's one thing that I I would like to touch on is so far, what we've seen with Joseph is not only more emotion than we've seen with anybody so far in the Bible, but masculine emotion And I do want to touch on this on another episode in depth, but I will touch on it a little bit again. Our society has this notion that men don't cry, men don't feel emotions. However, what we're seeing here is that Joseph is is expressing his emotions appropriately. He is finally reconciling with his brother. He is overcome with emotion and it's fine. But oftentimes we we see masculine emotion, especially emotions of vulnerability like tears and all this other stuff. We see that as a negative. So we create this hostility, especially amongst men towards 
vulnerable emotion. However, in this in this case, this vulnerable emotion is healing. You know, the fact that Joseph is able to allow himself to feel and express that feeling now that the time is appropriate. Now that's allowing him to bridge that bond with his brothers. So I just hope everybody takes that away from all of this. So keep on reading. So the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them cards by Pharaoh's command and gave them provisions for the journey. Each of them he gave a change of clothes, while Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five sets of clothes. Also, his father he sent the following 10 donkeys carrying the best of Egypt and 10 female donkeys carrying grain and food and provisions for his father's journey. Then he sent his brothers off and they and as they departed, he said to them, don't be so anxious on the way, because as we read in the past, his brothers were very anxious, like on the whole way when they found out, oh, crap, we got we still got our money, you know, so now he's telling them it's okay. Then they went up to Egypt. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And it's funny, like, how they went, how they called them the sons of Israel. But now they're the sons of Jacob. I just find that that switching back and forth. It's bipolar. But uh, they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler of all the land of Egypt. His heart went numb, for he did not believe them. But they told him all of Joseph's words and that he and and what he had told them when when he saw the wagons that Joseph has sent to pick him up, the spirit of his father revived. Then Israel said, enough, my son Joseph is still alive. I must go and see him before I die. And that is it for chapter 45. See, you know, real, real quick, you know, but again, so. Uh, Dennis writes um, about verse 24, uh, don't be so, well, in, in our version, it said anxious. In Dennis's version, it says, don't be quarrelsome on the way. And he writes, the Hebrew word translated here as quarrelsome, uh, terigizu, means get angry in modern Hebrew. The literal meaning is to shake. So that's probably why they said anxious. In the biblical Hebrew, it is used to mean to fear. See Exodus 15, 14, Deuteronomy 2, 25, 1 Samuel 14, 15. Joseph remarks would mean don't fear on the way. It is an expression of a newly repaired familiar relation. So, and he also writes uh, when uh, Jacob says Joseph is still alive, Jacob's reaction to his son's new uh, of his son's news was a shock and disbelief because the news that Joseph was not only alive and well, but he was also the ruler of Egypt was literally unbelievable. Moreover, there were these same sons had brought him a blood soaked tunic 20 years before leading Jacob to conclude Joseph was dead. Though he never confronted them about it, he had to have wondered what really happened to his beloved son and what his other sons knew about it. The brothers had reaped the inevitable consequences of lying, being doubted when telling the truth. Many adolescents and teens lied to their parents 
And when their parents respond, even to the truth, with skepticism, they angrily protest, you don't trust me. To which the appropriate response is, why should I? Yep. Case in point, don't lie. So now we're going to move on. Because this chapter was so short, this chapter is just as equally as short. Uh, We're going to get into chapter 46, Jacob goes to Egypt. So Israel set out. Uh, along with everything that belonged to him, when he came to Beersheba, he offered a sacrifice to to the God of his father Isaac. In the, uh, in visions of the night, God said to Israel, "Jacob, Jacob." Jacob says, "Hanini," meaning, "Here I am. I am God, the God of your father." He said, "Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will turn you into a great nation there." I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I myself will also most certainly bring you up. Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. And we haven't really heard anything from God in a long time. And since probably the time of Isaac, we have not heard anything. You know, um, if anything, like we've heard from his angels, but we haven't heard anything from God himself. And what this tells me is that Jacob, you know, through all his dealings and all this other stuff, now God is claiming him as his own. And because now it's like God had to reveal, like, I am the God of your father, Isaac. So now it's like they're making a new covenant now that God is now promising that Jacob or Israel will be the father of nations. So. Uh, We're going to continue. So, oh, Dennis writes, Isaac was specifically mentioned probably because this was the place he had built an altar. See Genesis 26, 20, uh, verse 24 through 25, which is true. Uh, God identified himself as the God of your father may imply Jacob had relatively provisional understanding of God as simply the God of his father. God speaks to people in terms they can understand, though aware intellectually that God is universal, the creator of heaven and earth. Jacob nevertheless understood God in the way most natural to him, primarily as God of his father. Later, when Moses asked uh, God of for his name at the burning bush, God provided as much more sophisticated self description in Exodus 3, verse 14. And then, in addition to having a natural fear of the unknown, Jacob may have been afraid of dying on alien soil and or leaving the promised land, especially since God had forbidden his father Isaac from doing so. God also told Abraham, Isaac, and later Moses to fear not, though the Torah never states they were afraid. But God knows what we think and feel. God knows us better than we know ourselves. For the descendants that should, for the decent, that should be reassuring. For the indecent, it ought to be disquieting. But it often doesn't work the way, uh, that way because people, because decent people often think they are worse than they are. And indecent people almost always think they are better than what they are. For example, few groups have a high, have as high a self-esteem 
as do violent criminals. Three American professors of of psychology reported violent men seem to have a strong sense of personal superiority, favorable self-regard and linked to is linked to violence in one sphere after another. Murderers, rapists, wife beaters, violent youth gangs, aggressive nations, and other categories of violent people are all marked by strongly held views of their own superiority. When large groups of people defer in self-esteem, the group with the higher self-esteem is generally more violent one. The influence of fear on the human psyche and and on human behavior is too often overlooked. Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People, was approached after a speech one night by a man who asked him what sentence God repeated more than any other in the Bible. Kushner guessed it was the verse about being kind to the widow, strangers, and orphans. The man shook his head. Not even close, he said. The sentence God repeated more than any other is fear not. Kushner went home, looked up the phrase, and discovered the man was right. Of course, the same Torah and Bible to tell us to fear God because when people fear a good moral judging God, they are more likely to behave properly. This is borne out first and foremost by common sense. Fear of punishment is a primary deterrent to crime. A society that that meted out no punishment for crime would be overthrown by crime. As you can see in today's society, we don't really have any real punishment in crime. We just throw people in jail and that becomes street cred. But that's just me talking. Uh, Dennis continues to write, the common sense is confirmed by academic research as reported in a major academic study. Societies in which people believe in hell have fewer crimes. In a larger analysis of 26 years of data consisting of 143, 197 people in 67 countries, psychologists found significantly lower crime rates in society where many people believe in hell compared to those where more people believed in heaven. The key finding is that controlling for each other a nation's rate of belief in hell predicts lower crime rates, but a nation's rate of belief in heaven predicts higher crime rates. And these are strong effects. Lead author Azim Sharif, a professor of psychology and director of culture and morality lab at the University of Oregon, said in a in a university news release. Another study by Sharif found that students were more likely to cheat when they believe in forgiving God than a punishing God. Sharif concludes it it's possible that people who don't believe in the possibility of punishment in an afterlife feel like uh, they can get away with unethical behavior. There is less of a divine deterrent, though one would think that people who believe in heaven also believe in hell. It turns out that people are certain that they are are destined for heaven and have no fear whatsoever they will go to hell. Therefore, the threat of hell as a punishment for evil uh, behavior is no deterrent effect on their behavior. There is another benefit that uh, that accrues from fear of God. When we fear God, we are less likely to fear people. 
that not only provides the benefit of living a less fearful life, it also helps to supply people with a moral courage to do what is right as people risk. See the essay, The Moral Significance of Fearing God, in the commentary in Exodus 1, chapter 1, verse 17. When we believe in a fear and when we believe in and fear God and in the afterlife, we are not only less likely to fear people, we are also less likely to fear anything, even death, the most universal fear. In sum, it is highly significant. God says, fear not. Far more often anything else, he, uh, he says in the Bible. Too many people's behaviors and states of emotional well-being are affected by inappropriate fears. Couldn't have said it better myself, Dennis. All right. Uh, okay. All right, we're going to keep going. Then Jacob arose from, from Beersheba, and Israel's sons carried Jacob, their father, their little children, their wives, and the cart that Pharaoh has sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their possessions they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his offsprings with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and excuse me, and all of his offspring. He brought with them, uh, he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of his sons of the, these are the names of, uh, the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob and his sons. Jacob, Jacob's firstborn Reuben and Reuben's sons. And I am going to butcher almost all of these names. So bear with me. Laugh at me. Laugh with me. I don't care. Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. Simeon's sons. Jemuel, Jamin. Or Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zokar, Shaul, son of the uh, son of the Canaanite woman, Levi's son, Levi's sons, sorry, Gershon, Kohath, uh, Merari, Judah's sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, Zerah, Issachar's sons, Tola, Puva. Uh, Iob or Eob, Iob, Shimron, Zebelum's sons, Zared, Elon, and Jalel. These are Leah's sons, whom she born, who she bore to Jacob in Padaram, along with his daughter Dinah. The tally of all his sons and daughters was thirty-three people. All right, next. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, uh, Manasseh, uh, Manasseh, and Ephraim, or Eph, yeah, Ephraim, were born to Joseph in the land of Egypt. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore with him, bore them to him. Benjamin's sons, Bila, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Na- Naaman, Ehi. Rosh, Mupin, Hoopin, <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, Mupin, Hoopin, and Ard. These are Rachel's sons who were born to Jacob. The tally of all the people was 14. 
the son of Dan is Hashem. Neftal's son, Yachzil, Guni, Yezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bila, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob. The tally of all the people was seven. All the people belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, those coming from his loins, not counting the wives of Jacob's sons, the tally of all the people was 66. The sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt was a tally of two. The tally of the people belonging to Jacob's house who came to Egypt was 70. So, uh, should I read this now? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and read this now. So, Dennis has another little essay. The Torah lists the names of Jacob's descendants to make clear the national significance of their migration. This is how Israelites all ended up in Egypt where they would be enslaved for hundreds of years. The Torah lists many names of the non-famous as it does elsewhere, because the less well-known are also significant and worthy of memor- of, mem- uh, of memorializing. Why can I not read? Like many people, the Torah does not equate fame with significance. The majority of these grandsons are but names, Included in genealogies, but absent from narratives. Nevertheless, God has a role for each. For the famous and for the otherwise known. This is That was written by Hamilton. And now his essay, Why Few Women Are Listed. Some, some contemporary readers will be offended by the omission from the list of the women's names, which, with the exception of Dinah, or Dina, verse 15, and for reasons unknown, Sarah, verse 17, but give, but how often the Torah portrays women as primary actors on how incessant it is to equal worth of men and women. The omission has nothing to do with the devaluation of females. It is simply listing men as representing households, as was customary throughout the world until very recently. When I was a child, I recall asking my parents... In the United States of America, where women, where women had more equality and status than almost anywhere else in the world, why letters to my mother were addressed to Mrs. Mac, Max Prager rather than Mrs. Hilda Prager. They explain this was simply how married women were usually addressed and my mother, a very strong and independent woman, who ran a 400-bed nursing home, couldn't have cared less. Though for the record, it did bother me. Given the ever-changing social mores of society, it would have been impossible for the Torah for or for any text written today to meet the social standards of every future society. What is eternal about the Torah are, the, are its values and wisdom, not its genealogical list. And he writes uh, the significance of at the end of it, 70 may be a precise number, but it also signifies completeness. As we see the seven written earlier was a perfect number or was perfection. Uh, it is 10 times seven. The Torah number that represents completion, divinity and creation. Here is a, 
here it represents the complete people of Israel going to Egypt where their fate will be will be lived out as foretold by God to Abraham in Genesis 15:13. There are 10 other times the Hebrew Bible describes groups of numbering 70. To offer a lighthearted glimpse into the Torah numerology about 7, Hamilton points out the seventh son of of Jacob listed here is Gad. And the sum of the numerical value assigned to the two uh, to the two Hebrew letters of Gad, Gimel and Dilad, equals seven. Boom. See, God is a jokester. All right. So, we're going to continue reading. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph, who shown him the way to Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph harnessed his chariot and went up to the land of Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell upon his neck and wept on his neck for some time. Then Israel said to Joseph, at this time, I am ready to die after seeing your face in person, for you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, and they've been men who've handled livestock, who have brought their flocks and cattle and everything that they possess. So when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You must say, your servants have been men who, who handled livestock since the time of our youth until now. But we and our fathers, both we and our fathers, so that we can live in the land of Goshen because every shepherd is loathsome in Egypt. And that's it. However, Dennis got more. So he talks about Goshen. Goshen is a region of Egypt located in the eastern delta of the Nile River where the Israelites ended up living for hundreds of years. He continues, Hebrew literally states that Joseph wept on his neck more, a powerful description phrase that does not appear anywhere in the Torah, Joseph was indescribably overcome with emotions at being reunited with his father. Now, uh, uh, he, uh, Jacob would live yet another 17 years with Joseph. Books and book endings the 17 year he had uh, he had with Joseph before he vanished uh, from Jacob's life. Now, and he finishes, numerous scholars note there is no extra biblical evidence suggesting Egyptians abhorred shepherds. But Rashi points out that sheep were Egyptian deities. And the 12th century commentator Eben Ezra often offers an explanation that the ancient Egyptians, like modern Hindus, did not eat meat. (sighs) weirdos <laughs> yet another jewish commentary dot zeknim a compendium uh yeah a compendium of commentaries published in 1783 in italy states the egyptians hate sheep meat i.e mutton just as they hated goat's meat this was something not not unique to the egyptians This is also why they could not sit at the same table as the Hebrews 
when they later were being served lamb. The Hebrews claim to have, uh, wait, sorry, I got sidetracked. The Hebrews claim that they would have insulted the Egyptians if they slaughtered their animals as ser- as service to their God inside the boundaries of the land of Egypt. Whatever the explanation, ancient Egyptian xenophobia is well documented and at the very least, Joseph was referring to that. And that is it. So, where was that? I, got, I said, I, I see, I told y'all I was probably going to forget. All right. Uh, yep, I think I forgot what I was going to talk about. Mm, 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 mm. Told y'all. See, I, I get so pumped when I when I read this stuff. But if anything, like, uh, again, I, I really enjoy reading these. Um, it, it's definitely something that I can apply to my life. Uh, and, and especially one of the things that I, I can recall was when Dennis talked about um, why the women weren't um, weren't identified and, you know, and, and referencing his mother and why, like, when she would get mail, it would be referred to her fa- his father's name but they will put MRS for Mrs. In today's society, we have lost a lot of, a lot of our social boundaries. And I was watching a video from mediocre uh, tutorials and reviews. And he was doing, he was reviewing a panel with Shahrazad. I think that's her name. Shahrazad Ali, Dr. Shahrazad Ali. Um, she has tons of videos, uh, you know, back in the eighties talking about in the nineties, talking about how, um, of course she's Muslim. So a lot of her stuff, you know, was some of her stuff I don't agree with, but a lot of her stuff I do, especially when it comes to the, the relationship between men and women, specifically black men and women. Now, of course she goes into her, her uh her Louis Farrakhan esque style of communicating, which I mean I I mean that that goes to, she's from the nation of Islam, so I kind of get it. However, some things I don't fully agree with, but I kind of do on some sort of level. But anyway, but she talks about a lot of the issues with relationships today, and I'm seeing a lot of women want so much of their identity to be their own and not with and not their identity that they have with their husbands. And I'll probably do a episode on this, but I do want to say this. A lot of times women and people don't understand what it means to be a family and what it means to be a household. And then when we're listing the names of, of Jacob's sons were listing names of households because as men, we give up a lot of who we are for our families. We have to change a lot of who we are for our families. And that, and that's a good thing. However, what we're seeing today in, in our society is that women aren't ready to do that because women are being told you have your own identity, have your own drive and all this other stuff. 
And as we see in the Bible, we see prominent women. They are, they, these prominent women are named. However, women care more about their prominence. And this is not to bash women, but this is to give some sort of perspective. When you take your husband's name, you are claiming your, your identity because, and, and this should be a, a very empowering thing. Men have to earn their names from their fathers, as we see here. Jay Isaac didn't, I mean, Jacob didn't really become his own, really, until God came to him and said, I will make you the father of all nations. God had to approach Jacob and say, I am the, I am the God of your father. So he's not saying, I am your God, I am the God of your father. So as as men, we have to earn our names from our families, from our fathers in doing good deeds, upholding family values. But as women, you also, when you say I do and a man marries you, you are accepting that man's name. You are accepting a part of his household. So and especially in today's society, I don't see families anymore. I don't see Households. I don't see names. I see, while being an individual is nice, and it is important, we have to make sure that we are building families. You know, and even to the Egyptians' point, like when Pharaoh was giving them the fat of the land, if it was not for Joseph, if it was not for Joseph being who he was, earning his name, pretty much... Pharaoh based his assumption off of his relatives, even though Joseph was a slave. That's why he gave them the fat of the land, because it was out of respect for Joseph, because Joseph earned his own name in Egypt. Joseph was number two in the land of Egypt. So this is important for both men and women. Men, you have to be worthy of the name that you hold regardless of if your father or your brothers or your relatives did you dirty, you can't stand them, make your name your own. Women, when you when a man gets when a man asks you to marry him and you say I do, you are accepting that man. You are accepting his name. You are accepting his seed. You are accepting his lineage. You become his household. So as we can see in, in Joseph's story, his brothers did him dirty. They sold him and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to sell him into slavery. You had Reuben telling his father, like, look, if I don't bring him back, you can kill my own sons. However, the Hebrews got the fat of Egypt because of Joseph, because of who he is, what his name meant. Regardless, if your family is nothing but degenerates, low lives, thieves, thugs, you can still earn your name and have your name mean something. A little bit about me. I don't come from a very well-to-do family. Hell, I don't even like half of them. Majority of them don't even speak to me because... Whether it be out of jealousy, whether it be out of whatever. However, I'm still a testament of my 
even though my parents are divorced, I have my father's name, but I was raised by my mother and my father had an active role in my life, but I am a product of them. And, and that also goes into what we'll discuss in Exodus uh, on one of the 10 commandments, honor your father and your mother, because even though your parents may be crappy, even though you can come from a crappy family, a, a sheep herders family where the Egyptians look down on them, because you are who you are, because your name commands so much respect, that looks great upon your family, even though they probably don't deserve it. So even in your individuality, you, your individuality still shines on everybody else. If I was a piece of crap, which to some I probably am, that may, they may think of my family. They may think of the missus because she is my wife. They may, that may reflect badly on her. That may reflect badly on my, on my parents. That may reflect badly on my kids. Who knows? But I mean, hate to say it in today's society, it's like if you just so happen to be black and killed by a white police officer, hey, you could be the, the lowest low life ever. Maybe, I mean, and, and your name can mean something. I mean, because who knows? Because in today's society, depravity and, and wretchedness rules. And it seems like men whose names actually mean something Something good who actually gives something to the world, like a Dr. Ben Carson, a Thomas Sowell, a Dr. Vadi Bachman, all this other stuff. Hell, um, Ben Shapiro. These men's families get ridiculed and, and give death threats, even though these men actually give to the world. I mean, but don't be afraid of, of retribution, because remember... As Dennis talked about in his book, out of the fear of God, when you fear God and you respect God, you don't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal to feel to fear anything else. And when you look at the Bible and it and God repeats to you, have no fear. You can have no fear because if God is the most ultimate thing and he's telling you not to fear him, why should I fear anybody else? Women, if you know that God is the, excuse me, if God is the only thing that you fear, why should you have fear in taking your husband's name and allowing your husband to lead and allowing your husband to be the spiritual head of your family and putting your faith in him? Because if he's living by God's way, then you'll be all right. But with that, I'm about to wrap up. So if you guys will please uh, visit the Edmo Show on Facebook at the Edmo Show Listener Group. Also, visit our friends at Wilder Tactical. And, hey, give our friends over at, at Gun Monkeys and everywhere else and and uh, and um, the Zopium Den. Give our friends a visit. You know, let them know that Edmo sent you. But also, we got PayPal now, so it, you guys don't have to donate money if if it's not within your means or if God doesn't put it in your heart to donate. You know, hey, just give us five stars in a comment, and we will greatly appreciate it. At least I would. So until then, we will see you guys next time. Peace out. Peace out.